Today we are going to turn to, excuse me, the book of Acts uh, to learn about a man named Stephen. And I'm going to begin, uh, as printed in your bulletin, uh, chapter 6, verses 8, and I'm actually going to go through the first verse or two of verse chapter 7. So listen now to what may be, through the Spirit, God's word to us today. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others from those from Cilicia and Asia, they all stood up and they argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. So then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. And they suddenly confronted him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him. And they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these things so? And Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy one in three and holy three in one. I quote again the words of the prophet Isaiah to, to ask that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So may the word that you say to us not return to you empty, but accomplish that which you purpose and succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Amen. So friends at Westminster, I would like to introduce you to, or reintroduce you, to Stephen. Stephen has something to show us today. A day when we gather in this sanctuary for worship, while others work behind checkout counters, or pick crops in summer fields, while soldiers and sailors silently keep their watch, 
as some citizens whose liberty they aim to defend launch messages of exclusion on our nation's shared ground. We all need the witness of Stephen today. Stephen, we are told, was a person who was full of grace and power, someone who performed great wonders and signs among his people. The book of Acts, written by the writer of the Gospel, Luke, celebrates Stephen for his faithful exuberance in proclaiming the Gospel in word and in deed. A proclamation that landed Stephen, as we hear, before a skeptical crowd seething in the face of his angelic witness. When accused, Stephen implored his listeners to listen. And then with great rhetorical flourish, he told them that the God of their ancestors, of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, the God that they sought to defend in prosecuting him, was the very God whom they were attacking in accusing him of blasphemy. This angered the council beyond measure, and with their teeth literally grinding in spite, they dragged his body to a field at the outskirts of town, and they stoned him to death. And all the while, as he received the blows raining down on him, Stephen imitated the Christ that he served. He humbly yielded his spirit to God and echoed Christ's prayer on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his time, none could have surpassed Stephen for the depth and the vigor with which he preached and exemplified the Christ he served. And yet the great irony and the central turn of this text and of the sermon today is that Stephen was not supposed to be preaching or evangelizing or performing great deeds for the world to see. The service that he gave was not the job that he was given. You see, Stephen was supposed to wait on tables. In the chapter preceding this one, the twelve disciples are gathered together and they're overwhelmed by how much work it requires for them to distribute food to all of the needy members of their own community. And so they commissioned seven men, Stephen among them, to serve at the tables so that they, the disciples, could be out and about and serve the gospel in their public preaching and witness. When I first jumped back into the text, my initial reaction was to castigate the disciples for finding the, oh, this table service. We're above that work. You do that, Stephen, while we go do the important work of preaching. Kind of hits home for the pastor in me. But if you look at the text, that's not how they approached this decision. The disciples actually considered this food service, this table service, to be very important, and they put great care into choosing the people that would be up to the task of doing it. 
men of good standing, full of spirit and wisdom. And before they did the work, they commissioned them, they laid hands on them, much in the same way that we lay hands on our pastors and elders and deacons to ordain them and set them aside for the work in the church that they are called to do. This work was important to the disciples. It was, they just felt, not in their job description. And they essentially said to Stephen, Stephen, for this all to work, you need to do your job, and we will do ours. But as we see, that didn't work out as planned. Stephen emerges in our text as the one who is doing the preaching and the performing of great works. And notably absent in this story are the disciples. For clues as to why, I think we should return to the initial phrase in our reading today, which is that Stephen was full of grace and power. The Greek word for power in this text is dynameos, from which we get our word dynamic, dynamism. Dynamism is the opposite of static, of being fixed in a place. Dynamism is characterized by motion and change and progress, not constraint. Full of God's favor, Stephen dynamically moved beyond the boundaries of the important but narrow role assigned to him. His service was not constrained by a job assignment. His impact not fixed within the boundaries that others set upon him. In fact, it was because of Stephen's faithful proclamation to the death and the community's subsequent persecution that the message of Jesus spread outside of Jerusalem as the disciples ran when things got tough and they took the message of the gospel with them. Today, Stephen can remind us that in God's grace and God's dynamic power, there are limits to our limits. Stephen is like the many in this world who do the work that many, if not most of us, would choose not to do. The work of the migrant farmer laboring hour upon hour in the hot sun to gather the food without which we cannot do without. The men and women of our armed forces who sacrifice so much of themselves to protect the life that they may ultimately lose for us to have it. When we say, that job is for those people, not me, we often disregard their great giftedness or perhaps cause them to doubt it in themselves. A month or so ago, a team of us went to North Dakota to visit the partner church at the Spirit Lake Indian Reservation, and one of our afternoons was spent at the community college on the reservation. And we met with an employee of the college who was a graduate of the school herself, who had a very important job 
That is, her responsibility was to administer the financial aid to the students who would not be able to be a student without it. And for a better part of an afternoon, we talked together about the school, its students, the challenges and the blessings of that place, and how best to disperse the scholarships that your pledges want, your pledges fund every year. But later on the, that night, we needed to make a Walmart run. We went off the reservation, literally. And we meandered through the endless aisles of low-priced goods and reconvened at the checkout lines. And you know how that works. You're looking for the best line. You're strategizing. Which one looks like it's got the, oh, what's got the flow? And we picked one that was maybe two-thirds of the way to our right. And there, working in a cashier, working as a cashier in her blue Walmart vest, was the financial aid administrator with whom we had met that afternoon. Our initial reaction was amazement and glee, like, wow, what a coincidence, a needle in a haystack for us to see you here again tonight. Isn't this amazing? But it was very clear in the guardedness of her smile and in the downward gaze of her eyes that we were not a welcome sight. She was clearly uncomfortable. And by no means did we look down on her. If anything, we looked up to her for being someone who had enough energy and strength to work a full day at the school and then stand on her feet for a full shift at night. But I wonder if something was lost for her in that encounter. That maybe she wanted us to know her less as a cashier and more as one whose life work is to help others transcend their station in life. In her and in Stephen, we do see the dignity of all manner of service. But we are also reminded of the ways that we often impose limits that God, in God's dynamic power, seeks to break down. Throughout history, the church has wrestled with a heresy called modalism. According to modalism, God is not worshipped in the Trinity as three distinct persons. Instead, God merely reveals God's self in three different forms. God as creator, Christ as redeemer, spirit as sustainer. And modalists understand and frame the Trinity as we understand water. Like, just as water can be at one moment vapor, and the next moment liquid, and the next moment gas, so God can exist in three different modes or forms, but at different times. So what modalism does is it denies the fullness of each person of the Trinity and narrows and confines God into a narrow casting of roles and tasks. God has one job, Christ has the other, and the Spirit has the third. Against modalism, our faith asserts that God the Father is not alone in being God the Creator. 
For we hold in Scripture that it is in Christ through whom all things came into being. And we see that in the Godhead, it is not Christ alone who redeems or saves, for it is the God of the people of Israel who saved them from their slavery and their subsequent subsequent sins. And it is not just the Spirit who sustains. For Christ says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. You might be saying to yourself, Oh, come on. Why does this really matter? Let's just call God God and be done with it and move on from this theological hair-splitting. You might be right. But in the Reformed faith, we take very seriously the grandeur of God. And we rightly then take great concern with anything that would reduce or limit the freedom and fullness of God to be God. Modalism does that. It constrains the identity of a being to one particular aspect of its being. Stephen becomes only a table waiter, our ministry partner, only a checkout lady, God, only a creator. Modalism remains with us today. We hear it in the shouts of the white supremacists who blasphemes the dynamism of God and the dignity of all people by reducing their identity to a particular aspect of their race, color, or creed. We who confess God as three in one must resist this kind of modalism in all of its forms against any creed that denies the full grace and favor of God to any person or people. So a question arises, not unlike the question that Whitney received yesterday. If we are to oppose supremacy, how do we treat the supremacist? How do we treat the supremacist? Because after all, if modalism is harmful because it limits the identity of one particular, it limits the identity of someone to their particular role. Should we see the marcher as more than a supremacist, as someone's father or son, someone's husband or brother, our neighbor? Should our shared humanity with him soften our disgust at the stains that he casts upon that humanity? Should we separate the sinner from the sin? These are harder questions to which I have imperfect answers. We are to love and to have compassion for our enemies. We are to forgive and show mercy as we have been forgiven in God's mercy. And yet, we must also remember that the white supremacists has claimed his his racist views as the primary mode by which he reveals himself to the world. In effect, by choosing the path of a supremacist, he modalizes himself, even as he inflicts that heresy on others. 
So perhaps we do love our neighbor, our enemy, by opposing that which in him does harm to himself. If our inclination, if in our inclination to show compassion, we try to see him not as a supremacist, but as a father, or as a husband, or a fellow neighbor, or a citizen, we then fall into the trap of replacing one mode of his identity for the other. The doctrine of the Trinity seeks to preserve not only the particularity of each member of the Trinity, but also the shared unity among them. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. So we cannot excuse the white supremacist of his grave error merely because he is also a father or a son or a neighbor. His modes are particular, but they are unified. His supremacist views infect and distort how he parents, how he husbands, how he works and worships and plays. I recently read a poem authored by a white supremacist in the early 19th century. And its language was elevated and soaring, but nonetheless, ugliness permeated the poetry. White supremacy and supremacy of any kind insist upon distinction, but they reject unity. And misguided compassion can hide behind unity to avoid the need to express distinction or difference. If modalism diminishes, constrains, fixates, God's grace and power elevate, they invigorate, they cast into motion, surprising motion. When we move beyond modalism in our private and public life, we expand our freedom to be fully alive and fully available for God's service. We may find ourselves doing things we would think we have no business doing. If I may be briefly anecdotal about being anti-modal. So glad I got that. I was asked last summer to serve on the board of our community pool, a, a neighborhood pool that we've been members of for many years. Some of you are belong to that pool. Uh, and they asked me to be co-chair of operations, as in the person or persons who run a pool. Manage, make sure the chlorinator does what the chlorinator is supposed to do and knows what a chlorinator is. And my first reaction was to say, no way, I am not a pool operations manager. I can't even manage my house. And I still can't do either. But I did say yes. Partly out of a sense of, well, maybe God wants me to just do something different that I would ordinarily say, no, that job is not for me. And I actually really don't think that job is for me. <laughs> but it's opened me to this community in ways that have really deepened and enriched my life. I'd like to think that in Acts, when the disciples are gone, we don't see them anywhere in the text. What are they doing? They're the ones 
supposed to be preaching and teaching, and they're leaving Stephen to do it all by himself to his great harm. Where are they? I'd like to think that they too were filled with God's favor and dynamic power, that maybe they, at that very moment, were waiting on the tables. In meeting Stephen, may you sense an opening in your own life. A door opens to possibility. Such that every vested worker in the checkout line, every laborer in the field, every soldier manning her post, and significantly every person that greets you in the mirror, young or old, black or white, straight or gay, ambulatory or in the ambulance, that that person would appear to you as an embodiment of God's dynamism and possibility. Someone in whom distinction and unity are not in opposition, but in concert. In concert with a God who is Father and Son and Spirit who creates, redeems, and sustains this broken and fearful world. Stephen was asked to wait on tables, and he gladly did it. And filled with God's grace and dynamic power, he did so much more. In this world, and in each of you, that grace and that power reside still. Amen.